Good morning. Welcome home, family. It's good to be here with you today as we worship our God and as we worship together. We are continuing our series going through the book of Proverbs. We've been in it for a few weeks now. We've talked about how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, about how sin kind of entices us away from God and His ways for our life, how there's blessings that come when we follow God and the wisdom He has for our life. We have talked about how we should not lean on our own understanding, but trust the Lord in all situations. We've kind of hit kind of topics about uh, sexual immorality and anger and words, and today we're going to continue that theme of hitting kind of topics about how do we function thinking about God as we plan our life. And so that's where we will be this morning. Um, and so, before we dive in there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time in which we can come before you as your people and worship you. Praise and pray and focus our hearts and our minds upon you and what you have done for us. Lord, I pray for this time as we open up your word that you bring it to life in our hearts and our minds that we can truly know you. That we can see your wisdom for our life and apply it to our life. That we can see how you would have us be and actually be your people in response to what you've already done. Not as if we earn something, not as if we achieve something, if we do your word correctly, but as a response to already your love you've already poured out in our lives, we respond to you with our life. Lord, we love you and we seek you for all these things. Amen. There's a trap I believe we all, if you're like me at all, we all can fall into. Is that sometimes in the hustle and bustle of life, we start living as if God doesn't exist. That we go about life, we go about making our plans, we go about doing our own thing, we go about our work, we go about our family life, but we really don't stop or slow down to consider what God would have to say about this situation or how should we approach it from God's angle or where or even consider God in the midst of it. Now, we can admit this. Sometimes we're probably on track. Sometimes we're, we fall into this more often than not. We can look like a good Christian, whatever that means, so often in life, but yet when we come toward that life, there's not that much difference between us and the world. We can believe that God exists, but live as if he doesn't. We can admit that to each other. We are, we're family here. I was reading actually in a devotional that I actually recommend to everyone. It's called Sunday Matters by Paul David Tripp, and it's a great devotional that encourages you to actually anticipate Sunday and what the church does. But I was reading in this devotional, and he captured it so well that I think I just have to read some of his words. And he says this, I don't know about you, but in the Russian press of life, I can lose my mind. I'm not talking about going insane or need to be institutionalized. I'm talking about a much more subtle form of insanity uh, that often inflicts me and a vast number of my Christian brothers and sisters. There are moments in my life when I lose my gospel mind. There are moments when I live as if God does not exist. The Bible has never been written and Jesus has never lived, died, and rose again. I'm not referencing an intentional walking away from the faith, but rather a deformative gospel forgetfulness. Why do I call it deformative? Because in these moments of my life, it is no longer for, uh, is, these moments of my life are no longer formed by a vibrant rest in the surrender to my Lord, but rather is deformed 
by other things in and around me. There are times when I lose sight of what is truly important and valuable in life. And when I do, it alters what I believe, desire, how I think, what I say, and the things I do. I'm sure I'm not alone. Perhaps during an argument with your husband, wife, or friend, securing affirmation as being right for once becomes the most important thing to you. You have lost your gospel mind. Maybe you find yourself doing what is ne- whatever is necessary to get that job promotion. You have lost your gospel mind. Maybe you're willing to destroy your relationship with your neighbor over a boundary dispute. You have lost your gospel mind. Maybe you rip vengefully into your teenager because you're tired of being disrespected. You have lost your gospel mind. Maybe you cling to an unending obsession with your weight and appearance. You have lost your gospel mind. Perhaps a lifestyle dream is leading you into crushing debt. You have lost your gospel mind. Maybe you harbor a pattern of internet sexual sin. You have lost your gospel mind. Maybe you feel an overwhelming anxiety about what people think about you and how they respond to you. You have lost your gospel mind. Or you might demand to be in charge and control of your relationships. You have lost your gospel mind. Maybe you are passive and complacent. When it comes to your faith, you have lost your gospel mind. Maybe patterns of envy and bitterness have robbed you of your joy. You have lost your gospel mind. I think we can all relate to that when we can lose our gospel mind or we can function as if God does not exist in a huge area, I think, at least for me, and maybe it's true for you, and the Bible seems to emphasize it as true for people throughout time, was that we make plans, we do our life, and we don't stop to consider God. That we operate as functional atheists because we don't stop to consider what God would have for us and how we should live and operate and plan. And the writer of Proverbs in this instance brings this to mind in Proverbs chapter 16. And we're going to be reading Proverbs chapter 16, 1 through 3, and then jumping to verse 9. If you want to follow along, it's going to be on the screens. If you want to turn to it in your Bible, please do so. If you want a physical Bible and you don't have one under your seats, there's a Bible, and it will be on page 505. You can find Proverbs chapter 16. And it starts like this. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Then jumping to chapter, uh, verse 9, it says, The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. When we read Proverbs 16 and see these truths, what would we pull from it about how we're supposed to live before God? I'll just offer this. Commit your ways to the Lord. It's a simple thing that comes straight from the text that really when we think about how we should live, how we should plan, how we should uh, frame our hopes and our desires, we can commit our ways to the Lord, that before we act, we actually start, stop and actually think about what God would want us to do. We slow down and we offer our plans to God and we allow his word and him to scrutinize our plans. And we really come before him and commit your ways to the Lord and ask him to show you the ways in which you're supposed to follow. So we commit your plans to the Lord. We see this truth in Proverbs 16, that we commit our ways to our God and that he works in them as we do so. 
When we read Proverbs 16, or when I read Proverbs 16, there is this dichotomy at place here that the man, humanity, does one thing and God is doing another thing. And we have this almost tension at play about how humans plan, humans act, it's humans' responsibility to live their life before God, but God is actually sovereign. He's in control. He determines men's steps. He determines what's going to happen. He knows the spirit and all these things. And so theologians can look at this and they can think of a tension there between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And actually many people argue about how you reconcile this apparent tension from the text about how man is responsible, yet God is in control of everything. And there's been great debates about that. But what's amazing is that when you read the Bible, you actually don't find a tension. What you find is that both of these things are true, and the Bible says they're true. The Bible says humans are responsible for their actions, their choices, and the way they go. That's truth. And the Bible also says God is in control of everything. He has decreed the end, the end, the means. And he's sovereign, and his plans cannot be thwarted. That is true. And so we go and it's like, well, how, what does this mean? How do we reconcile that? You can do it by several ways, I think. Perspective is actually a good way, is that when it comes to our perspectives, we don't know God's mind. We have his revealed word, and so we can follow that from our perspective. We know we should do what we should do because we have been called to do it, and we know that it's dependent upon our actions that things happen. So from man's perspective, humanity's perspective, we should be diligent in planning well, executing well, living well, because we know the results depend upon how we work. But we also know that there's a God's perspective, that God sees all, knows all, has planned all, and he's in work even in our efforts. And so we, God's perspective helps us understand that there's something actually working beyond what we can see. I would offer you a fancy word that helps us understand how we recognize how we're supposed to live in that tension that we might feel. And that's the word of compatibilism. It's a fancy word. That all that means is that Human responsibility is compatible with God's sovereignty because the Bible declares that we should be responsible, independent, uh, responsible human beings who are working with all our efforts to do what we know we're supposed to do, but we also do that with a knowledge and confidence that God is working in us and through us and through history itself. And these things are not at all against each other, but they're actually compatible with one another. And so you work and operate dependent upon this mighty God. But there's a problem there. We can all recognize the problem. <laughs> that, that kind of two-sided coin, that tension there between God being in control and we have to do it, is hard to maintain. We struggle to have, find a balance there and we end up falling off one way or the other. You see people fall off one way where they say, well, God's in control. That means I can sit back and relax, and he's got it. I let go, let God, and I live my life. Woo! Fall off that way. That's not how we're called to live according to the Bible, especially Proverbs. Another way we fall off is people say, well, then it's all on me, right? So I got to do, I got to achieve, I got to perform, I got to make sure it's all on me and do it, and I'm going to take care of it, I'm going to tie it up, and you feel the pressure, anxiety of a life that's on your shoulders. And again, the Bible would reassure us that's not how we're supposed to live or see life, but rather we find that balance as we live and we approach it 
And we, we approach it knowing with humble dependence that God is in control, that he's working in us. But we're also called to honor him with our lives. But this problem is actually pretty intense, this, this, this lean. And if we're honest, probably most of us lean towards that I got to do it. It's all on me. If I don't do it, nothing gets done. And so we feel that pull that we have to take care of it and we have to control our lives when we have this problem. You can see it almost everywhere. I ran into it. It kind of sticks into in my mind. There's this poem called Invictus. It actually is an old it's a movie from several years ago that really was focused around this poem. And one of the lines of this poem ended, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And it kind of was a rallying cry of the whole movie. It was kind of like, hey, let's get together. We're going to do it. We're going to change the history of the world because I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my own soul and all this stuff. And that's really, really where humans tend to operate in. That we tend to operate in this understanding that I'm in control of my own destiny. And if I grab onto it with white-knuckled intensity, I can guarantee what happens and I can control my life. But if you've lived for any amount of time, you know that's not true. You cannot control your life like that. All that happens is that you bear this incredible crushing burden and you see how you are actually not in control. Which is why we just read at the beginning, uh, through in the service Adam read about in the book of James about how people struggled with this. They were living as if God didn't exist, and they, so they were operating their life, making plans about going here or doing this, or about being you know, in the marketplace, but yet they did not consider God in the midst of it. They were living as if God did not, exist, did not uh, really consider our plans. And how that's the problem that Proverbs 16, I think, addresses to us. How do we operate on a daily life? How do we plan in accordance with who God is? So Proverbs chapter 16 starts with, off with the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. This word for plans carries a sense of arranging something in an ordinary manner. The same kind of word grouping is used for how armies would be arranged in marching order and get ready for combat. The same word is used for like legal cases that you arrange your arguments in an orderly manner. It's really pointing to the fact that humans have this great responsibility, this great power, is that we can use our reason and our mind and our logic to plan. We can put order on sometimes a seemingly chaotic world around us. We have this great ability to do that. It's actually because we're made in God's image that we can do that, that we reflect God because we have a logical mind, we have reason that we can actually plan. But this is a great responsibility. And as we all know, because the theologian Spiderman says it, actually it's Uncle Ben, with great power comes great responsibility. And as humans, we have this great power because we reflect, we reflect the image of God, that we are different than all of his other creation, that we can plan, we can, we can execute and, and think things through, and we can organize in an orderly manner our life. 
But also this says, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. That we can plan and we can organize and we can organize to a T. But when it says answer, this is almost like the, the perfect response. That the thing we need, the, the ways we need to go, this is what comes from the Lord. That even as we plan, we need to be dependent upon God as he gives us the way to go. There's again that urgement. It's like, yes, use your mind, use your logic, plan your life, but when the midst of that, be dependent upon the correct way to go because that is what God gives us, that the answer depends upon God, that he gives us that perfect solution. Chapter 2, I mean, verse 2 says, All the ways of the man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Humanity is a master of justification. We can justify anything and everything that we do. You can find yourself walking into a situation that there might be a little voice in the back of your head that says, this is not good for you. And we can say, no, 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 I can handle it. I can do it. This is fine. We can justify why we're doing almost anything. And so we get that sense that all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, that we actually think our motives are the best motives. We're like, I'm just doing what the best thing. You know, in my own eyes, I'm operating pretty good. But this verse reminds us the best judge for motives, for the heart, is God himself. That he, as it says, weighs the spirit. He knows the true motives be in people's eyes, or in people's ways. That the ways, the outward actions of people, God actually is going to judge their ways. And we know the fact that God is going to judge all of our ways, how we live. And we look forward to that time as he's going to come and judge us. But in the meantime, it's like, not like he does not judge us or gives us a tool for allow us to evaluate our ways. Is that he's given us the word of God, his word, that we can read it, we can know it, we can have it in our lives. And that actually becomes a tool we can use to evaluate our own motives. Why are we doing the way things we're doing? Why are we operating the ways we're operating? That is actually wise for Christians, believers in God, who have his word, to humble ourselves before God and ask him to expose our motives through his word. That's wise that when we're making any decisions, when we're making any plans, when we're living our life, that we humbly come before God's word and say, am I not who am I right now? How am I operating? Expose me to, with your truth. Actually, we, we, we come to God's word as that tool that helps us judge what, how we should operate, what we should do to help us judge our plans. And we have this almost, this great kind of um, promise, if you will. Commit, in verse 3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. This is where I get the main point where we commit your plans to the Lord as we commit our work to the Lord. Commit, this is a word that carries this, this kind of sense of roll over. Is that when we think about our plans, when we think about our dreams, our hopes, our aspirations, we can get some anxiety about them. We're wondering if they're going to come true. We're wondering if they're actually going to work how we plan they're going to do. And we can feel that anxiety. And this is saying, roll that anxiety, roll those expectations over onto God. 
You roll your plans and how you want them to go on to God. And when you do that, God says he's going to establish them. That when we do that, we can trust that God's in the midst of our plans. We roll them on to God. Why do we do that? Because we know who God is. We know he's an all-wise God. We know that he knows everything. Because we know who God is and how he loves us, we are willing actually to give our plans over to him. We roll them over to them. I think of a couple of verses in the New Testament that reinforce this. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's this sense that we cast our anxieties, we roll them on to God. Why? Because we know he cares for us. We know he loves us. And if he loves us, we trust that his plans for us are better even than our own plans. Or we do this in a, like a, as a Paul urges in Ephesians 4, 6 and 7, when he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. That we do this by actually praying to God and asking him, hey, I'm anxious about my plans, my dreams, what's going on in the future, and I'm going to give them to you. And we do that by praying to him and saying, this is where I'm going, this is what I'm doing. God, help me understand that in this great promise. It says, and then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That when we give our plans to God, give our anxieties to God about our plans, we can trust the peace of God actually guards our minds. We know that God loves us. He's working on our behalf. He's working even in our own plans for our good. And if that's true, we will be established. Both verse 3 and verse 9 have this idea that God establishes our plans, our works, in our steps, it's the same word that's used for how God creates. He established the heavens and the earth, that God will establish our plans. And when we read that, we must not forget that first part. Because often we can read that and say, great, that means I can plan, and then God is going to come with a rubber stamp and say, your plans are established, and when they're guaranteed, right? No, it says you first commit your work to the Lord. You give it over to him. That God does not promise just to establish everything. It's not guaranteeing, but actually it says that if you're willing to submit your plan to God's word, if you're willing to submit your plan to God's way, if you're willing to submit your desires and your hopes and expectations to who God is and what he has for your life, then we can guarantee that now our plans are going to be transformed and changed into his plans for our lives, and they become part of his story for the world. That our plans actually can become part of his plans for our lives. A commentator says it this way. He says, God doesn't guarantee any and every plan we may conjure up, but those which the Lord has a part in and which he has been allowed to scrutinize. When our plans are in line with his plan, our plan becomes part of the story of God's redemptive plan for the world. If we plan and undertake our dreams with utter dependence upon the Lord for their fulfillment, and if we humbly acknowledge our accountability to him, he delights to mold our plans to conform to his and thus establish them. That when we humble ourselves before God and know that we're not the lords of our fate, our masters of our life, and give our plans, dreams to him, he delights 
to take them and mold them into his plans for us. That he transforms who we are, our desires, our longings, as he's renewing us again and again through his word. This is what it means to be a Christian is really when we think about who Jesus Christ is and we know the truth about how God loves us, how God the creator made humanity, made humanity in his image to reflect him, which is why we can plan. If we know that truth of how, who we are and who God is, about how humanity has now gone astray, which means we take this God-given gift to, to use our minds and our intellect to honor him. In fact, now we start morphing it to honor ourselves, which is the essence of sin, is that we put our plans before God's plans. We we put our desires before his desires. We put our expectations above everyone else. If we understand this is a natural state of humanity and rebellion against God, but he loves us so much that he's not going to let rebels stay rebels forever. He sends his son to live the perfect life in submission to his word, accomplishing all righteousness before him, and so that when he goes to the cross and our sins are imputed upon him, his righteousness is imputed upon all who believe in his name, given to us, so that now not only are our sins forgiven, but his righteousness now is in us, so that now we can approach the almighty throne of God with confidence that he knows us and hears us through Jesus Christ. And now we're a part of his family, and he knows us and loves us, and if we know that, which is the gospel, that means now we live in light of that. We're no longer our own. We've been bought with, 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 uh, through Jesus Christ. We're no longer just people and rebellion against God, but now we're servants and family members of this mighty God, and we seek to honor him with all our life. And so we take our life, our plans, our dreams, our desires, and we commit them to God. We say, God, you are in charge. We read our Bible and say, show us how we should live in light of your truth. We gather together to be reminded on a weekly basis, this is true. Help me in remembering this is true. We seek loved ones who are standing strong in the faith and help them encourage us to keep on track. And when we do that, we can trust and know that our plans now being gospelly transformed by our almighty God will be molded into what he has for us. It might not always be the most comfortable sensation when we realize that we've been living for ourselves too much and our plans have to change and that our outlook on life needs to be formed by the gospel. But this is what Proverbs 16 is telling us is that we live in light of this truth that God loves us. As verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So what does this mean for us? What is the real practical meaning of this for our lives? Is that we seek to give our life to God because he has given us life in the first place. He doubly owns us, creating us and then giving us a life forever in Jesus Christ. So what do we do? How do we respond? How do we live in this way? Just a few suggestions I would offer, and that's be aligned with his word. 
That means we pick up the Bible and we actually saturate our lives with the Word of God so that we know the, His ways of wisdom, we know the truth, we remind the gospel to us again and again, and so that we're aligned with it, so that when our plan, when we're thinking about our plans, when we're thinking about what we're going to do, we actually bring the Word and apply it to our life. And we know what we're called to do and we know what we're called not to do. We be aligned, we saturate our lives with the Word. That we seek counsel. That when we're thinking about what we're going to do, what the day, the week holds before us, we seek counsel. Maybe it's just the counsel of praying where we take our plans to God and say, God, I'm thinking I'm going to be doing this. But I'm praying to you. Why? Because I want to, in all my ways, commit my ways to you, my, my plans to you, Lord. So we actually actively pray for God to give us wisdom his wisdom on how we're supposed to navigate life and what we're supposed to do. Or if we are really bold, we actually seek counsel as we, we gather people that we trust who walk the way of God with us and we say, hey, help me understand if what I'm planning to do is good or not. Actually seek godly counsel from other people. So we don't, so we saturate ourselves with word, we seek counsel from God and from others, and then we gather together in the church, because as we gather together in the church, we are unified behind the gospel, around the gospel, pointed towards the gospel, and it helps us remember who we are. As we read at the, at the intro about how we can lose our gospel mind, when we gather together, we actually can regain that gospel mind through the gathering of the church. Paul David put, uh, Tripp puts it this way, what is one primary, primary ways of our loving Savior meets us as we struggle not to lose our gospel wines? He meets us with the gift of his church. He knows that we need help. He knows that we are not spiritually hardwired to make it on our own. So he has ordained his church to regularly gather that we would remember once again, grieve once again, celebrate once again, and go out and live in light of the beautiful values of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These regular gatherings of God's people are not first an obligation. They are a gift. They are not first a duty. They are well welcome. They are the Father pulling us up on his lap, whispering in our ear that he loves us, reminding you of who you are and of the surpassing value of being in his family and in putting you down and sending you on your way. That when we gather with the church in a very real way, we're reminded of the gospel what we believe, how God has organized life, and so that when we're sent out from here, we can apply the truth of the gospel to all of our life, all of our plans, all of what we look forward to. And then lastly, we trust. We trust in this God who establishes our steps. We trust in this God who establishes our work. We trust in this God who has placed you where you need to be in this season. We trust him in the midst of working for him and living out the truths of the gospel. Commit your plans to the Lord. Join me in prayer. Dear and Father, thank you so much for your word that we can read it, we can know it, we can hopefully be grown by it as we seek to honor you in all these ways of our life. Lord, I just ask that we continually seek you. That in the ways that we can, Lord, I just ask that we continually apply your truth to our life, that we seek your word so that we can know how to respond in situations, that we seek your word so that we know how we should be living or how uh, the tenor of our life should be directed. 
Lord, let us be people of your word. Let us be people of your church that willingly actually ask advice of each other to live in light of the truth of the gospel. Lord, let us be people who commit our ways, our plans to you, trusting you as we do so. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.